It's a pleasure to bring the word to you this morning. In Pastor Jim's absence, our senior pastor is, is away on vacation. And so I'm Brian Davis. I'm the associate worship pastor here. And it's my privilege to open God's word with you this morning. We're going to continue in our series in the fifth book of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, as you've already heard from Pastor Jim, this is the second telling of the law. Uh, we're currently in chapter five, which is referred to as the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Uh, and it's described in scripture as the basis uh, for God's covenant with Israel. It includes fundamental moral principles uh, that would govern them as a nation as well as how they would relate to the one true God. Now remember that these commandments were first given by God himself. We can find the record of that uh, back in Exodus 20. And if you're like me, when, when you think of the Ten Commandments, you probably you know, picture Charlton Heston coming down from the mountain with, with tablets of stone and, and delivering them to the people who, who are wicked and, uh, and disobeying God already at the foot of that mountain. But I think it's important to note that, that God not only spoke these Ten Commandments, he actually wrote him with, uh, with his very own finger. Now, all of Scripture carries the weight of God's authority. We believe that. Uh, we at Hillcrest uh, revere Scripture. We hold it in high regard. We know that it is the inspired Word of God. So all of it's useful, all of it's profitable. But I think we, we are warranted to give a little special attention to these Ten Commandments that come directly from the finger of God, directly from the mouth of God. And so it's good that we take time to fully understand them. This week, we're gonna be looking at the ninth commandment. Uh, and I think most of us would agree this should be rather obvious and non-controversial, uh, which is good for a, uh, a substitute preacher uh, to take. So our text this morning is gonna be Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 20. It's straightforward, it's simple. You can turn with me or, or see it in the notes there in front of you. It'll also be on your screens. Deuteronomy five twenty says this, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's pray together. Father, please speak to us through your word this morning. Speak directly to our hearts. Use your spirit that's within us to uh, convict us, to instruct us, uh, to guide us in a way that we might become more like your son, Jesus. May your word reveal eternal truths about who you are and, and let that be real to each of us this morning. And Father, let your grace and let your mercy extend to us even when we fall short of your glory. It's in the mighty name of your son, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. I got a question for you this morning. Has anybody ever read the great work by Alexander Dumas, The Count of Monte Cristo? Anybody read that? Well, you know what? Me neither. I've never read it. But I did see the movie, right? So, so like most of you, I can identify a little more with the movie with Jim Caviezel playing the part of Edmond Dantes. Uh, he's falsely accused you know, he's a sailor. He's, he's got this, this promising career and life ahead of him. He's got a fiance ready to be wed. He's going to get his first uh, uh, ship captain's role. Everything looks like it's turning up for him. And then, and then we have Mondego, right? We have Fernand Mondego. He falsely and anonymously accuses his so-called friend, Edmond Dantes, of treason. He does this out of jealousy, maybe even out of spite. So Dantes then loses his fiancée, he loses his freedom. He's shipped off uh, without even the benefit of a trial to the Chateau d'If, where he would endure uh, imprisonment and torture, all for a crime that he didn't even commit. He's driven to despair. He's lonely. He's driven nearly to suicide there as he suffers without even knowing why or by whom he had been betrayed. And then through a remarkable set of events, he, he amasses knowledge he learns things. He finally puts together this puzzle of his betrayal, what has happened to him. And then we have a daring prison escape that happens. And then he 
comes upon a great fortune. And then the rest of the story, he's implementing this, this concept of revenge that he's been planning all while he was imprisoned. Now, the, the, the beauty of the story, the great uh, glue that holds us together is this tension that exists of whether this is a story of revenge or a story of redemption. And while the story may conclude with a sense of justice, with the good guy coming out on top, I think that you can't tell, help but take note of all the death, all the destruction, all the evil that's been left behind. And so it is with the concept of false witness. It's a gross miscarriage of justice, and it can leave great destruction in its wake. Now, our text this morning is very short. Uh, it's only five words in the Hebrew. We could take time and, and parse each one of those out. We could look at, at various meanings, both in context and, and within other uh, societies in the ancient Near East. We could do an exhaustive study. But I think in reality, we really have, to, we have, really have one concern with how we interpret this text. And that is how narrow or how broad is the command to be taken. You know, in one sense, the Ten Commandments, they constitute terms of the Old Covenant. It's a covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And beyond that, this, this command appears to be presented uh, in a legal or a judicial sense. It prohibits the specific dishonesty of being a false witness, presumably in a court setting. And these are valid observations. Moses refers to the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus and Deuteronomy, as being the words of the covenant. And we also see later in Deuteronomy 19 that the issue of legal witnesses is addressed specifically by God and his law. So important is the principle of not bearing false witness that God prescribes the punishment quite explicitly. If someone were to be a false witness and judged to be so, he would suffer the punishment that he intended to inflict on the victim. So if someone brings a, a false charge that would carry the weight of the death penalty for someone else and he's found to be a false witness, he himself would be put to death. And it makes sense when you consider that, that back in this time that there's not a lot of forensic evidence that could be gathered and analyzed. Right? They couldn't just review some security camera footage. They couldn't analyze DNA samples and compare them to the perpetrator. They couldn't subpoena cell phone records and, and figure out who was guilty and who was innocent. Eyewitnesses were going to be crucial in determining justice in this culture. Here's how it's described when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. The law says, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Then in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, God makes it clear that being a false witness also includes not saying anything when there's a call that goes out for witnesses. So even your silence could make you a false witness. In Exodus 23, it describes this several, along with several other related legal offenses. It groups them together uh, with spreading false reports, with conspiring to pervert justice, and with taking bribes. As a matter of justice in the legal realm, true testimony was not only necessary, it was critical to justice being served. So its inclusion among these chief commandments, it shouldn't be a surprise to us as God is trying to form this new society. Now some may look at all this and they see it as reinforcing the that the commandment is, is merely confined to a legal matter related just to the old covenant. But I believe that the harsh punishment and the, the language that's used here, it actually demonstrates to us a, a more universal principle of truthfulness, right? We see this uh, with Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he consistently takes the laws that were given under the old covenant and demonstrates 
that all they were doing is reflecting a more universal truth about what is required by those who would please God. Murder is simply hate taken to its logical end. Adultery is lust taken to its logical end. And while the Ten Commandments might focus on behavior, they merely highlight the fruit of the evil that's actually within us. Thus, bearing false witness, I believe, to be more than a legal matter. It violates the holiness and justice of God, and it does violence to one's neighbor for personal gain. It's not merely forbidden in order to preserve justice. It's forbidden so that we might realize that the evil within us comes from a lack of respect for truth, and it must be purged from our lives. So it's with this greater perspective in mind that, that we'll take a look at Two basic principles I think we can, we can pull away from this about truthfulness. The first is in your notes there. It says that we are never more like Christ than when we are honest. We're never more like Christ than when we are honest. Is God honest? Well, clearly, honesty is a, a fundamental trait of God. Scripture tells us plainly in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God never lies. And more than that, if you look in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says that it's impossible for God to lie. See, because truth and honesty are part of the divine nature, dishonesty is not even an option for him. And though it stands to reason that if God can't lie, then anything he says in his word must also be true. As the psalmist says in Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word God produces is true. Because of everything he promises, because it's all true, then even when we can't see the conclusion, we can't see what it's gonna look like in the end, we can't even sometimes imagine how God is gonna be faithful to his promise, we still can rely on his word because it is true. But more than this, I think the primary reason that we can say that we're never more like Christ than when we're honest, it comes from Christ's own words. It may have already come to your mind this morning. In John chapter 14, verse six, we have this famous verse where Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It can't be made any clearer than that. Christ is truth. He doesn't simply know the truth. He doesn't speak the truth. He doesn't just teach the truth. He's the embodiment of the truth. Consider later his exchange with Pontius Pilate. When he's arrested by the religious leaders and, and brought to the Roman governor so that he might be executed, he, he tells him that everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And this prompts Pilate's famous question, what is truth? John doesn't record Jesus giving an answer to that question, so we don't really know even how the question was po posed to, to Jesus. Was it simply a rhetorical question? Was he somehow mocking Jesus or mocking the idea of truth itself? Was he honestly curious about what Jesus believed the truth to be? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. Christ had already given him the answer to his question, and in the first place, he's asking the wrong question to begin with, right? The proper question is, is not what is truth, but who is truth? The fact of the matter is truth was standing right before him in the person of Jesus Christ, but he just couldn't recognize it. I pray that we don't fall into the same error. So I think it's unavoidable. If we're followers of Christ, then we must be like him, and if we're going to be like him, then we're going to be people who love the truth. Conversely, I think we can look at the other side of this coin, and that's our second principle. This one might sting a little more. It says we are never more like the devil than when we are dishonest. We're never more like the devil 
than when we are dishonest. If it's clear from scripture uh, that truth is central to the character of God, I think it's also just as clear that lying is central to the, to the character of our adversary, the devil. In John chapter eight, Jesus has a, an interesting and, and contentious interaction with some Jews there in the temple. During his discourse, he, he speaks these two famous phrases you'll probably remember. It says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And then later he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So by doing this, he sets up a natural conclusion that he is in fact truth. Because if the truth is what sets you free, and the Son is what sets you free, then obviously the Son must be truth. That's, that's what we observed in our first point today. But then he, he takes a turn. He takes a turn at this point, and he, he turns it to a rebuke of those who would not believe. He shows how their character more closely resembles that of the devil. In verse 44, he tells them this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. As you can see, Jesus doesn't mince words here and so it's no wonder that just a few verses later, that group stands ready to stone him and take his life. Jesus makes it clear, though, that one of the defining traits of the devil is that he's a liar who has nothing to do with the truth. And those who are unwilling to listen to and to practice the truth, they're just like him. Now, I want to point out here that Jesus also calls the devil a murderer from the beginning. It's one of the first statements he makes about the devil. But then he, he turns and he almost focuses exclusively on the dishonesty of the devil, now, in our minds, I think if, if we knew somebody who was both a murderer and a liar, we'd probably focus a little more on the murderer part, right? It's true in how we would use language, right? We would call that person a murderer, right? We wouldn't necessarily refer to them as a liar. So why is this? I think murder maybe just seems more evil to us because it's more violent. It seems that Christ is saying that that, that violence that's simply the natural result of the devil having a dishonest character. In Psalm 27, verse 12, David pretty much agrees with this assessment when he describes the conduct of his own adversaries. He says this, Psalm 27, 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. The word picture that his poetry paints for us here is, is striking. Violence is, is not shown to be a product merely of their hands or, or even of their hearts. It's presented in the false words that they speak against him. I think for the one who is the victim of slander, the one who is falsely accused, words do become weapons of destruction. All you have to do is think about our example from, other, uh, from earlier, Edmond Dantes in the Count of Monte Cristo. He's rotting away in the prison and at one point, he concludes that being the victim of a false witness leads to a fate that's worse than death. You know, perhaps it's because we ourselves have the propensity to be dishonest that we don't view it with the same disgust as the Lord. If Jesus' words weren't enough, then we can look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 to see how God views dishonesty. He says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, 
and one who sows discord among brothers. Notice something there, right? God decides he's going to pick out six or seven things that he hates and he tells them about it, tells us about them. And guess what? Two of them are lying. I think it's safe to say that honesty is a pretty big deal to him and it should be a big deal to us. An improper relationship with the truth is, is more than just a slip of the tongue. It's more than just making a mistake. It's the thing that causes us to have more in common with the devil than with God and God hates it. Now I think this comprehensive look at how truth is fundamental to God's character and a disregard for truth is the defining trait of the devil. It's reflected in the law of God. Jesus himself gave us great insight when he described the law as being founded upon two basic commands. We've all heard them. Matthew records them like this in chapter 22 of his gospel, verses 37 through 40. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets depend. God's basic instruction to us is that we should love him and that we should love our neighbor. And bearing false witness against our neighbor shows not only a disregard for truth, which is God's very character, it shows a disregard to our neighbor, elevating our interests above all others. It simultaneously rejects both of the great commands that form the basis of God's relationship to man. Now, I hope by now that we can all agree with that old saying that, that honesty is in fact the best policy. But how do we put a principle of truthfulness into practice within our own lives? Now, I'm, I'm not interested in, in coming up with the wild scenarios about how if you were able to just tell this one lie that it would save millions of lives and what are we gonna do in that ethical dilemma? I'm not interested in talking about how you know, politeness sometimes dictates that we don't always share our true feelings all the time. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is how can we form our regular thought patterns and our behaviors around a biblical and godly relationship to the truth. Now remember, I said at the beginning that, that this passage would be non-controversial, right? And that, that's true, but I think that some of you may start to disagree with me now that we're looking at the real application of it to our own lives. So be warned, how are we careless with the truth? Think about that for a moment. How might you be careless with the truth. Obviously, if we bring a, a false charge or, or we lie in court, those things are clearly forbidden. But what are the more subtle ways that we may violate this commandment? You know, the import of the command is that we should not mistreat our neighbor by prioritizing our own desires above truth. And I think it's important that we remember 1 John 4.20. It says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So I think a, a good starting point maybe this morning is to, to understand that words have power. I'm not talking about you know, some mystical power that creates truth by what you say or, or even speaks things into existence. No, I'm talking about the power that comes from the effect that our words have on others. Proverbs 18.21 starts out this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now it may sound funny, but when we consider this, I think we can conclude that, you know, if you seem to be having trouble with truthfulness, you should probably consider talking less. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It, 
And that's what basically this chapter of Proverbs talks about in multiple places. Verse two says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Verse six says, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Verse seven continues, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. When you think about this, if someone ever asks you, does the Bible directly speak to a proper use of social media? You just say Proverbs 18. You just read Proverbs 18. It has much to say about our online conduct. And maybe, maybe that's your blind spot here this morning. You know, when you engage on social media, are you tempted to repost or repeat things that you know may not be true just because it fits your argument? Do you often exaggerate in order to make a point or to make yourself look good? Do you misrepresent someone else's position or even their character, both both good or bad, in order to win a debate? Now, all these things, they can be done in the real world for sure. That, That happens all the time. But I think somehow it's easier to fall into this subtle trap of dishonesty when we're using those online platforms. I exhort you this morning, don't do it. Don't fall for it. How can you claim to be standing up for the truth when you're so willing to discard it when it's inconvenient for you? Remember that in John 8, those same people who wanted to stone Jesus, you know, the ones that he called children of the devil, they probably thought on some level that they were just standing up for the truth too. We have to understand the power of words and respect the truth, lest we end up just like them. Now listen, even the most honest person among us is going to fail in truth-telling at some point. What we have to do whenever that happens is we have to repent, turn again towards the truth. Consider Paul's admonition to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter four and verse 25. He says this, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, while the ninth commandment, it may have been given as part of that old covenant with Israel, The Apostle Paul sees it here as being just as important for those new covenant believers in the church. And he does it for pretty much the same reason, that that we're neighbors, we're members of the body together, even when we have disagreements or, or issues with one another. I want to point out that he doesn't just tell them that they should be honest, he he reminds them that they've already put away falsehood. Paul does this a lot. You know, we're new creations in Christ. He's made it all things new. He's he's renewed us. But somehow, we fall back into the life we had before Christ. And it shouldn't be congruent with who we are. Right? The fact that Paul admonishes them to speak the truth, it proves that they were having some trouble speaking the truth. And so Paul appeals to this greater reality of their new life in Christ as a way to get them to understand that the way they're living is not the way they say they believe. And that's the mystery It's the mystery that's both convicting and also comforting. You know, we're in Christ, but we're also becoming like Christ. That's more than just a tagline or a mission statement here at Hillcrest. It's what Christ himself prayed just before his own betrayal and death. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays this for his disciples. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, when Jesus asked God to sanctify those disciples, he's referring to them being set apart and consecrated, dedicated to fulfilling God's purpose. And we are also to be sanctified. And the means of our sanctification is the same. 
the truth of God as expressed in his living word. He's given us the truth in scripture. He's given us the truth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So to love him is to love truth. Now we certainly see the world around us struggle with truth. You can't help but notice when people talk about my truth and, and your truth instead of talking about the truth that we have a problem. We should be prepared to stand for the truth, true, and, and we stand for the truth as it's revealed in God's word and we do so unashamedly, but what if other people aren't the only ones who have a problem with truth? Have you allowed the subtle infiltration of dishonesty to take root in your interactions with others? Are you prone to that exaggeration or that gossip or slander or misrepresentation? Have you been covering up the truth Maybe telling outright lies even to help maintain your own reputation or hide personal failings, all while even lying to yourself that it might be the right thing to do. And I'm not saying that we all need to, to give up on using social media, but I think it would be wise for some of us to do a little review of our own posts and tweets and retweets and see just how healthy our relationship with the truth actually is. Some of us need to evaluate the way we speak to our spouse. Maybe you need to evaluate the way you speak about your spouse. Maybe it's with the way that you treat those who have authority in your life, your parents, your bosses, dare I say, even your government officials. No matter what the specifics are regarding your failures in truth-telling, remember that there are steps to return to the truth. Just recognize the power of words, repent from what you've done, and allow the word of God to sanctify you in truth. If you're not putting the word of God in you, into your own life through regular Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization, maybe that's your next step. And we have Bible reading and memorization plans are available in the Next Step Center. You can pick one up on your way out the door today and even begin that journey. We have connect groups that meet every week or you can engage in a small group setting with the word of God and make it more a part of your life. We have opportunities for mentoring, opportunities for one-on-one -on -one discipleship, small group discipleship, even biblical counseling. Whatever your next step is, trust that the faithfulness of God and the truth of his word can transform your mind and your speech. Allow his word to become such a part of your life that you begin to see your neighbor the way God sees him. And these steps will help you truly put away falsehood and fulfill the greatest commandments of loving God and loving others.